Welcome to the Islam and Liberty podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to support us, visit islamandlibertynetwork.org. There is a donation button on the site. This episode, we have a recording of our 7th International Islam and Liberty Conference, the Islamic Case for Religious Freedom, held in Jakarta. Today, we have Professor Muhammad Hashim Kamali. He is founding CEO of the International Institute of Advanced Islamic Studies, Malaysia. His topic is Freedom of Religion, Apostasy and Conversion, Issues, Responses and Developments. If you're interested in reading his paper, it can be found on our website at islamilibitynetwork.org. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. Distinguished participants, excellencies, uh, learned speakers, ladies and gentlemen, assalamu alaikum. It is an honor to be addressing a learned gathering on the subject that is topical and hopefully fruitful. Um, my discussion is on freedom of religion, apostasy in conversion, issues, developments, and responses. I'll be speaking on basic characterization of freedom of religion, its relationship with human dignity, what the scriptural texts are telling us, then a few words on the rise of religiosity, but also of restrictions on practice of religious freedom, and what is happening in the Muslim world, um, the media depictions of freedom and freedom of religion, a word about the Aman message, and then developments in Malaysia. <clears throat> the Universal Declaration of Human Rights defines religious freedom as the right of everyone to freedom of thought, freedom of religion and belief, the practice of what he believes, and also inclusive of uh, to change one's religion. Uh, not only recognized for individuals, but also for groups and communities to practice, to educate, and to propagate their religions. Uh, this characterization of uh, freedom of religion is also also appears in the International Convention of Civil and Political uh, Rights, 1976. Freedom of religion is seen as a barometer of other fundamental rights and liberties. When there is freedom of religion in a particular country or community, it is a good indication that other fundamental rights are also respected and observed. Denial of freedom of religion also means a restrictive environment where other freedoms and rights are not observed. Uh, this is especially the case in pluralist societies, and most of us live in such societies. Um, <clears throat> Then uh, in countries where uh, a particular religion is declared as a state religion, other uh, religions are also accorded the liberty to practice their own faiths. Uh, but state religion is not without problem for the practice of freedom of religion. 
Freedom of religion is also rooted in moral freedom, allowing the individual to order their, his choices in accordance with truth. Muhammad Iqbal in his book, The Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam, uh, wrote that uh, freedom is a condition of goodness. A person who acts like a machine cannot generate goodness. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> that conservatism in religion is as bad. Uh, conservatism is bad for religion as it is in other areas of human activity because it destroys the ego's creative freedom for spiritual enterprise. It is especially important in a civilization that is motivated by inhuman competition and uh, lost its spiritual anchor in focus. The impact on the individual is a certain degree of loss of uh, focus to personality a certain disability to reintegrate as inner resources. Also, uh, God's immense trust in humankind as a vicegerent in the earth cannot be fulfilled, a responsibility that cannot be fulfilled without uh, freedom. It is uh, essential, therefore, Iqbal taught, uh, for any religion to energize the individual's inner resources, all the more so when human dignity is violated in so many ways, often in the name of religion. Human dignity is an aspect, uh, freedom of religion is an aspect of human dignity. Every individual is entitled to a basic degree of uh, dignity regardless of status, origin, language, and race. And uh, denial of uh, dignity fosters uh, a reductive vision of human personality. Sacred scripture in almost all the great religion are affirmative on human dignity and recognizes it as a capacity to transcend one's own immateriality and seek the truth. Uh, Iqbal again equates human dignity with universal good. It is essential for basic human fulfillment. Uh, the Quran <clears throat> is affirmative on freedom of religion, and we have more than half a dozen verses on um, freedom of religion. One or two were cited before. Lakum dinukum waliyadin. To you, your religion, and to me, mine. Um, the, the truth has been revealed by your Lord. Let one 
who wishes to believe, believe, and one who wishes to disbelieve, let him disbelieve. There is also a passage in the Quran, those who believe then disbelieve, then believed again and then disbelieved, and then increased in their disbelief. God will not forgive them and will not guide them to the right path. This is literal apostasy unfolding in a verse of the Quran. Had there been any punishment for it, it would have been recorded here. But this is not the case. In another verse earlier cited, if Allah had willed, everyone on the face of the earth would have become believers. Are you forcing people, O Muhammad, to become believers? I decided not to do that. Are you going to do it? Uh, belief in God is a personal choice. Uh, how he uses it is his own responsibility. This is also in another verse of the Quran, from One who takes guidance, it is for his own benefit. One who wishes to be misguided, it is for his own disbenefit. And no one will be carrying the burden of another person. It is strictly a personal responsibility. There is a degree of recognition also for the religious dialogue in the Quran. Tell the people of the book, قُلْ يَا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ تَعَالَوْ إِلَىٰ كَلِمَةٍ سَوَاءٍ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَكُمْ Tell the people of the book to come together over a word that is common between us and you that we do not worship other than God, that we do not <clears throat> associate anything with God, and the verse continued. This is a kind of a recognition of religious dialogue. Um, uh, and uh, the practice, when you look at the practice of the Prophet Muhammad in uh, Mecca in Medina, uh, he showed uh, tolerance. He showed tolerance. He met and engaged with delegations from uh, Jewish and, and, and Christian communities. He was signatory to the Charter of Medina, uh, the Constitution of Medina, that declared in one article that Jews and Muslims are one Ummah, one community. And in the same document, the Quranic verse is replicated. Lakum dinukum waliyadin. To you, your religion, and to me, mine. Yet there is a hadith. Man baddala dinakum faqtuluhu, one who changes his religion, shall be killed. Unfortunately, this hadith has been taken out of context uh, and practiced. And also, uh, it seems to have suppressed all the what we read in the Quran. Unfortunately, we believe that this is circumstantial, true for the time uh, when the Muslim community was in an extremely sensitive time, on the verge of collapse, in the midst of a great deal of conspiracies emerging, uh, and uh, the hadith is not a decisive text. It's not a, 
qat'i, it's as one speculative text, because if you look at the face of the hadith, if Zoroastrian uh, on a Hindu becomes a Muslim, literally, it would fall under the hadith. One who changes his religion shall be killed. It is not within the intention of this text that this should happen. Then the Hanafis also uh, maintain that it is not applicable to women because the words man uh, is for the masculine and the hudud are uh, abandoned whenever there is an element of doubt. Al-Shatibi, the Andalusian Maliki scholar, he also maintains that the reference here is not to change of religion, but changing the principles of religion. <clears throat> Therefore, it is a, a speculative text and has been given, is open to interpretation, and the interpretation is given in a, in a hadith. That is, Tariq lidinihi mufariq lil one who abandons his religion but boycotts the community and challenges its leadership. It is applicable to high treason at that sensitive time. But due to uh, the expansions of dominion of Islam during the Abbasid, Umayyad and Abbasid times, Islam came into contact with other great traditions. And uh, the jurists, the fuqaha, began to uh, impose certain restrictions. A new Islamic uh, orthodoxy began to emerge. Uh, and it is doubtful that some of those restrictions and aggressions um, uh, are in harmony with what you read in the Quran. Uh, the history of religion freedom is also a checkered history. Great religions have often been restrictive. They have reluctantly recognized freedom of religion for its followers, especially to embrace another religion. And this is true of uh, Roman Empire, of uh, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, in fact, the verses uh, passages on apostasy are still present in Bible, in the Jewish uh, Torah. The Quran does not have any text, only in the Hadith. Another challenge, as earlier mentioned, is the emergence of, uh, uh, of state religion. For the first time, the Ottomans um, declared Hanafi Mashab as the state mashab and Islam as the state religion. This represented another challenge for freedom of religion. When the state closely identifies with a particular religion, often the state used and abused this, uh, used it as a criterion of legitimacy. And the separation of religion in politics became problematic. And for the first time, it is the American Constitution in 1789 that declared it, and from there, it spread. In the Islamic tradition, uh, <clears throat> the fuqaha have shown a degree of respect uh, 
for this not merging religion and state as such. They have used all sorts of expressions, imama, khilafa, sultana, amara, but not dawla islamiyah. Dawla islamiyah is, occurs for the first time in the writing of Rashid Raza in early 20th century. Uh, this has not been used by uh, Muslim jurists. And uh, <clears throat> this is because there is no reference in the Quran or Sunnah to state as such, not in this combination of state religion or religious state. And uh, the Prophet himself has not referred to a state as such. Therefore, the Mazahib, the leading schools of Islamic law, maintain that it is a matter of consultation, ijtihad, and bay'ah. Uh, state is, a, in fact, civilian matter. Civilian state is uh, the position that the fuqaha have maintained. Bay'ah is equivalent to electoral system and uh, uh, in Islam, in the history of Islam, uh, religion is a, is a civilian matter. Uh, it is an election, and uh, uh, there is a certain degree of separation of power. The fuqaha and mujtahidun were in charge of the, uh, the legislative, the justices in the judiciary were independent. Um, there is, therefore, it is for the Muslims. Uh, like the hadith, Antum a'lamu bi umuri dunyakum. You know the affairs, your temporal affairs best. And therefore, the hope is that uh, the Muslims of our time uh, recognizes this threat to freedom of religion. Uh, from this combination of state religion and religion as such, and distance the two gradually from one another. I mentioned there is a, unfortunately, uh, well, a rise on the one hand in religiosity uh, and also restrictions on freedom of religion. The world is more religious now than it has been 10, 15 years ago, and the likelihood is continuing. In 1970, 80% of people of the world were religious. In 2010, it raised to 88%, and in 2020, projection is it will be 90% of people will have followers of, followers of one religion or the other. Uh, <clears throat> the reason was that, uh, uh, well, the increase of religiosity is the rise of Buddhism in Christianity in China. Uh, and uh, there is also the uh, number of apostates and atheists also steadily declining partly due to the collapse of communism in 1991. Before that, 19.2% uh, were atheists, and uh, this will be, uh, predictions are that it will be reduced, and uh, 
more and more people were turned to religion, especially after 1991, this has happened. The human rights group in the Pew's research have uh, reported that violations of the freedom of religion has also on the rise in many uh, countries globally, both by governments and by non-state agencies. And the reasons are parochial interpretation of religion, also political economic factors, uh, but uh, well, statistics also show that among the 25 world most populous countries, Pakistan, Turkey, Egypt, Indonesia, Indonesia also is mentioned, uh, rank among countries with uh, greater restrictions on freedom of religion. This is Pew's research. Well, uh, this is uh, extremism, Islamic extremism, also uh, practice of uh, dictatorship in Myanmar, in China, uh, Hindu extremism in India, and also uh, the West, in the West shows greater hostility to religious groups. Uh, also in Western media, distortion of uh, freedom and freedom of religion. Freedom is sovereignly sacrosanct, almost absolute, whereas religion is something absolute. Uh, freedom was depicted uh, in the in the cartoon incident some years ago, as a weapon literally of insult that led to loss of life in many places. Yet, uh, <clears throat> what is happening in the Western media is not really in harmony with the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, they they prohibit uh, annoyance and hurt. Uh, to human fellows, and Muslims are included in that. Uh, then uh, Western perceptions of, uh, uh, of the Muslim world is not only related uh, to history, the history of colonialism, but also the control of oil. So in, since the 1970s, when some countries exercised the degree of control, Zionist control over sectors of American society and rise of Palestinian resistance, this intensified media uh, onslaught on, well, uh, images um, like Muslim terror and media, you know, slants is likely to continue. We do not see this kind of uh, aggressive trend in Western media to subside because of these interests. There is in the Quran in 20, at least 21 instances reference to apostasy in renunciation of Islam. There are in 200 verses support for freedom of religion. In none of those there is any mention of any punishment for those who uh, turn their back on Islam. Uh, early scholars and contemporary scholars, Al-Nakhai, the teacher of Imam Abu Hanifa, 
in Imam Abu Hanifa himself, Sufyan al-Thawri from Syria. Um, with regard to apostasy, they maintained Abdul Wahab al-Sha'rani, um, that uh, the apostate should be uh, taught and educated for as long as their hope uh, of their coming to, to guidance. There is no death punishment for, uh, in their writing, they advocate that uh, what Islam advises is that they should be invited and educated. Contemporary scholars, Ismail Badawi, Hassan al-Aili, they thought that uh, by al-Nakhai and Abu Hanifa's time, that Islam was no longer under threat. The sensitive time between collapse and survival was no longer the case, and greater tolerance tends to be emerge, emerging in those times. In my own writings, I maintain that the hadith we cited earlier is a tashri zamani, is a, uh, a temporary legislation designed to address a uh, problem at that time, but it was not meant to be perpetuated and become a principle of Islamic jurisprudence. Unfortunately, history unfolded in different ways. Immediately after the, the death of the Prophet, then you had under the time of Abu Bakr, Hurub al-Ridda, wars of apostasy. Uh, on people who refused to give zakat to the state. Abu Bakr and Omar had a dispute. These are not apostates. These are just uh, refusers of giving of zakat. But the threat to Islam was such that they were all treated as apostates. <clears throat> Uh, Mahmoud Shaltout, former rector of Azhar, maintained that the hudud cannot be based on a solitary hadith. This is an ahad hadith, cannot be the basis of such a grievous treatment, death between life and death. Mahmasani, Salim al-Awwa, they also thought that uh, it is meant for high treason, not for... Uh, uh, for a peaceful change of religion. The same Murtaza Mutahari, the Shia scholar. Uh, and therefore, uh, this is the correct interpretation. The Hadith is an isolated proclamation that uh, now the consensus is emerging. Freedom of religion is what, as earlier stated, uh, gives Islam uh, to um, express his inner resources in teachings in a better way, in a more convincing way. You cannot combine what we read in the sources with this kind of, uh, that one who uh, changes his religion shall be killed. There is uh, um, then a certain development, a welcome development, the Amman message in 2004 uh, in Jordan. And at, uh, uh, initially 24 ulama from all mazhabs came together 
and they declared three principles. Uh, one of them that followers of all the eight mazhab, the four Sunni mazhab, Maliki, Hanafi, Shafi, Hanbali, and uh, the two Shia mazhab, Jafari and Zaidi. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> these eight mazhab, they are all Muslims and their mazhabs are represent valid interpretation of Islam. Uh, the second principle that uh, they declared that the Shia and Sunni, the arkan of Islam, the five pillars of Islam, and the six pillars of Iman are identical between Shia and Sunni, and Shia is a valid interpretation of Islam. The third principle they advocated was the valid fatwa. The fatwa must be based on valid principles of Islam. And uh, this, in the next one or two years, 2005 and six, uh, in about six major international conferences, altogether 200 ulama from all corners of the world concurred and endorsed the Amman message. And we hope that this will be, this is the modern consensus or ijma of, more of, of more the Muslims of the world. The Malaysian experience, a few words. The constitution of Malaysia uh, declares freedom of religion as a, as a basic principle uh, and followers of other religion are free to practice their own religion but also it recognizes Islam as the religion of the federation. Non-Muslim, Malaysia is a highly pluralist society, are not entitled, however, to propagate religious doctrines among the Muslims. The constitution does not declare a change of religion to be a given right, a constitutional right. There is a degree of silence. And this has become a subject of interpretation. There has been court cases uh, where the Muslims are entitled to change their religion and convert to another religion. Uh, in a leading court case, the High Court, <coughs> court in 2002 uh, declared that uh, Muslims are not allowed to change to another religion. But the, <clears throat> the appeal court in the same year in Qamariya bin Ali in another case held that Muslims were also entitled to change their religion and embrace another. But uh, they cannot do that unilaterally. They must be, this must be approved by the Sharia court. The court to confirm that this particular person has left Islam. Uh, so there should be an application to the Sharia court. Uh, the problem is that the Sharia court hardly acts on that. The application stays and often met with a degree of hostility. Malaysia has on the whole, generally speaking, uh, has uh, had a positive record of managing its pluralism and different levels. It is a fairly successful country economically in terms of management 
of its pluralism. There has been positive development like Rukun Negara, something equivalent to Panchasila of Indonesia. Certain policies are to uh, uh, the schools and universities to integrate uh, uni unified programs and introduce programs that advocate freedom and pluralism in Malaysia. Contemporary recommendations in the last one or two minutes that I will finish is that practical measures should be taken to prevent violation of the freedom of religion. Three approaches are recommended. One is the human rights approach, which focuses on monitoring and uh, accountability uh, that we should uh, identify countries and communities that violate religious freedom and give them a certain visibility. The second approach is conflict resolution approach, uh, which is uh, uh, advises preventive uh, measures and solutions for violations of freedom of religion. What are the consequences for those who violate? And the third is interfaith and interreligious approach. Here the emphasis is on better education and information about the importance of freedom of religion and uh, the enormity of its violation. Our hope is that the ulama uh, should also avoid superficial conclusion from the, their own tradition to look at the depth of their richness of their own tradition and recognize that Islam does not go well together with religious restriction. Countries that practice freedom of religion, they have civil pay, peace and economic prosperity and success. If Muslims are and to be in charge of the affairs of state and pluralism in a society. Our hope is that they will uh, learn better lessons and look to the sources of Islam for guidance and uh, avoid restrictions, imposition of restrictions on freedom of religion. I thank you for your attention. Assalamu alaikum. Okay, my name is Saeed Ahmad Rid. I'm from Pakistan. Uh, my question is, uh, Dr. Kamali, during recommendations, you talked about um, I mean, if there is some violation, then human rights and conflict resolution can be solution. So it just struck to me like uh, most of the cases when violations happen, uh, then uh, there is always backing in the you know people like most of them got scot-free, like uh, from Pakistan example, I can see that uh, whenever it happens, most of the times it's state, I mean, backing somehow, are, and most of the time they got scot-free, no, I mean, like, you know, law uh, can come in action, something. So what can be the conflict resolution in that kind of situation can help out uh, our human rights? Thank you. 
Can we have Eugene also? Yeah, answer? yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Kamali. Uh, Eugene, yeah, from the Religious Freedom Institute and also for fellow Malaysian. Uh, Professor Kamali, you spoke about uh, the ulama should avoid uh, what you call superficial judgment or superficial conclusion. Now, the question here, of course, in Malaysia is that there are plenty ulama and even muftis uh, actually come to very superficial judgment and conclusion. Uh, how then do we now uh, begin to uh, educate them or perhaps uh, motivate them to not come to this kind of a superficial conclusion? Uh, is there some education? You spoke of uh, interfaith uh, dialogues and all, but most of this ulama refuse to have interfaith dialogue. Perhaps you could suggest some uh, very practical ways uh, to avoid uh, uh, to, to, to avoid ulama coming to superficial conclusion. Thank you. Okay. Assalamualaikum. Uh, my name is Mubarik from Ahmadiyya, Indonesia. From Professor Kamali, I heard about the successful in the practice of uh, religion freedoms in Malaysia. So I just want to learn about how about the successful in Malaysia, especially if uh, Muslims cannot change uh, his religions restricted. That is, uh, I think, just not the freedom of religions itself. Then uh, how the government of Malaysia treat the Ahmadi followers in Malaysia? So uh, it declares that Ahmadi is not Muslim by government states. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the first question, I did not get the focus of the question. Uh, there was human rights. Uh, mentioned, but I, I'm not quite sure what the, question, the nature of the question was, or whether that uh, human rights is a, not the right or correct context for advocating freedom of religion. Was that the question? I think the, the question was about the this human rights case is there, but what happens when execution, the legal structure, the implementation, the rule of, rule of law, the example was from Pakistani context, is not respected then that is not effective anymore. Right. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think that uh, the degree of sensitivity that a particular state shows to these aspects of Islam or lack of that sensitivity, that is the issue. I think that in Pakistan, we have a problem. Uh, in politics, it becomes an election issue, whether the law of apostasy, death punishment is applied or not, is that politicized to that extent? That is, of course, uh, not the right approach, and one would not advocate that. I think that uh, there is essential harmony between human rights and the Sharia. There may be perhaps some points of departure, but 90% of uh, what the human rights discourse advocates is in harmony with the teachings of Islam. Uh, perhaps uh, the ulama, the muftis. Uh, in my, my understanding is in conformity with the question that right now conservatism tends to be dominating among the ulama class and the muftis and sharia judges. Uh, this seems to be 
not taking the, the, the normative guidance of Islam. <coughs> the restrictive approach of the mazahib, the belated aggression that I referred to, the kind of orthodoxy uh, that uh, is belated development, then seems to be still dominating the mentalities of our religious leaders. That is problematic. I think that this is in Malaysia uh, generally true, despite the fact that there are positive development, but we look to Indonesia in this respect. I understand the ulama of Indonesia, they join hand with the civilian movement, people's freedom freedom of exercise, intolerance. This is a challenge, a challenge that can only be met through right education, through the correct approach, the normative approach. I quoted six verses of the Quran, one isolated hadith, and so much evidence against it, and yet we seem to be stuck with that, you know, the kind of hadith that uh, departs from no mention of the, on the question of life and death. If there is something, an isolated reference in a hadith, in an ahad hadith, are you willing to abandon so much evidence in the Quran being the primary source? I think the answer should be obvious. And this should be what the muftis and ulama should be talking about. I think the generation, especially the younger people, they are not quite happy with the kind of language. I have spoken on this subject in different countries, in Afghanistan, where I come from. Um, I asked the ulama, we were in the Constitution Review Commission, a group of the Kabul Sunni ulama came, what is your expectation of the new Constitution? They want us to be, uh, to be more punitive to women, to be 100% Islamic. And I said, is this the message you convey to the youth, to the generation? Have you sat with them? Have you asked uh, women what is their problem? The women of Afghanistan have a great deal of problem with these kind of close mentalities. I think this is not an isolated case. Even in more open societies, we still have problems, the youth and women and the muftis and the ulama, the language that they speak. In Utundi, I tell them, have you sat with one or two women, one or two younger students from uh, universities? There, there, there is a blankness. They, I, they isolate. Whereas in Islam, al-ulama warasatul anbiya, that the ulama are the, the inheritance of the prophets. What is the prophet's message? Is to guide people, to give correct guidance, to lead them to the right path. What is you call truly the hidayah, uh, correct guidance? Are the ulama in muftis are doing that? I, I, I regret that this is not the case. Exceptions are exceptions. I think if we have speakers like the one sitting next to me, uh, we would be um, a 
lot more happier in countries that I mentioned. Um, Ahmadis have a problem, not just in Malaysia, in Pakistan, a greater problem. Uh, <clears throat> from my understanding of the verses of the Quran, the Hidayah has been revealed to you. This is the guidance. Uh, and <clears throat> those who take it, it is for their own benefit, enriches their own sense of conscious, consciousness and the depth of their moral resources. Uh, and if you take misguidance, then that is your choice. Uh, so we, um, we believe if the Ahmadis believe some, so that is, uh, there is a difference between religion, freedom of religion and freedom of belief. Freedom of religion and belief. Uh, the first one is constitutionally guaranteed that you are free to practice the religion of your choice or propagate it and, and express it in different ways. But freedom of belief is that you may embrace a belief and ideology, but you may not practice it in the public space. I believe you can categorize these, you know, Ahmadis and others in that area. They have the freedom to embrace it, but they may not practice it in the open space. Do not go to the mosque on Friday and practice their own ideology or propagate it. That may be the difference between. <coughs> but the Islamic guidance is to open the space. Uh, not everyone takes correct guidance, not even in the Prophet's time. There were hypocrites, there were disbelievers, there were enemies of Islam. You cannot really imagine a society of, you know, perfection. There are problems, there are challenges, and it is a journey. It's not a destination. So we hope that there will be improvement gradually with correct teaching, with correct guidance. Okay, uh, Prof. Hashim Kamali, in your book, uh, you always said about this issue of equal citizenship in the book of citizenship and accountability of the government and so on. Citizenship? Yeah, citizenship and accountability of the government and Islamic perspective. And you always uh, advocate on the issue of equal citizenship between Muslim and non-Muslim. But now uh, still uh, it is a, I could say, daunting task because we still have ulama, for example, still subscribing the idea of second-class citizen and so on. So uh, actually, uh, first uh, I would like to have your view. Uh, how do you engage with ulama council or uh, the fatwa council of outsider to debunk this kind of perception. And my second question, if you can uh, give comment uh, on how far the, the successful of the new Malaysia government in terms of giving space for the religious freedom in Malaysia. Thank you. Faisal is the president of ABIM, the youth movement in Malaysia. Assalamu alaikum. I am Professor Dr. Atar Rahman Miyaji from Bangladesh, Professor Hashim Kamali, thank you very much for your excellent deliberation. But I want to know, you have mentioned six pillars of Islam. 
in your lecture. But according to the Hadith and the Sunnah, we know that Islam is based on five pillars. I mentioned six pillars of Iman, five pillars of Islam. The six pillars of Iman. Six pillars of Iman. Okay. Thank you very much. First question is about citizenship. You know that Islam is a religion of equality. There is no first class citizen and second class citizen. Uh, <clears throat> when you look at the history of Islam. I think that on this note, there is also recognition that Muslim societies, the Ottomans, Umayyads and Abbasis, they have a slightly better record of treating the non-Muslims in the minorities among them. Uh, <clears throat> the question of how non-Muslims are treated among Muslim majority countries is not free of all problems. We know that uh, there are issues. But if you look at the teachings of Islam, the way the Prophet himself engaged with the uh, non-Islamic non communities, especially the Ahlul Kitab. The Ahlul Kitab is a distinctive status in Islam. Their traditions, their laws, they are allowed to practice their, not only their religion, but things that are prohibited in Islam. They may practice it, they take wine, they take pork, or even the Zoroastrian societies, the marriage among close relatives, they were practiced in the midst of Muslim-majority societies. I think the history does provide some encouragement that citizenship is not a religious concept. It's a civilian concept. When it comes to the basic rights and liberties, we have a consensus. I think that uh, Ijma, the general consensus, which is a recognized judgment of the uh, source of law and judgment in Islamic jurisprudence, this is, Ijma is not a historic phenomenon. We have consensus in our time. And it does carry weight. And I think that uh, among uh, all of the Muslim countries, 57 countries, maybe there are an odd exception, they do recognize the concept of citizenship. Equality before the law, equality before the court of justice, equality in basic rights and liberties, this is the modern consensus of Muslim countries in constitutions. And I think this carries religious weight. If it is, it is a source of valid source of law in judgment. And I think that uh, in Islam also there is no recognition for deprivation of... Uh, of there was for Zimis, for example, there were some fiqhi developments. But the modern concept is that of Muwatinun, compatriots. Compatriots, you have them in Egypt, you have them in other countries, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Afghanistan. The countries vary. There are issues of uh, inequality issues in 
the kind of general concept of the society and tradition. But Islamic guidance uh, tends to recognize civilian liberty, the concept of citizenship, basic rights for both, for everyone. Unfortunately, Professor Hashim Kamali didn't get to complete his answer to Faisal Aziz's question due to time constraints. So he asked his colleague, Muhammad Azam Muhammad Adil, to help answer in another session. Here he is. Um, as uh, everyone knows or who don't know, Malaysia, we have the Islamic matters are confined to the respected, uh, respected uh, state. It is under the prerogative of the sultans for those states who have sultans. And the problems that we have nine sultans, and we have 14 muftis and 14 religious departments and councils. And they have the, uh, we call it, the, uh, I mean, the power and traditions over that matters. When it comes to apostasy, as I mentioned, offense uh, are provided uh, under these uh, respected criminal, Sharia criminal uh, laws in respective states. But there's one state in Malaysia by the name of Negeri Sembilan who has introduced, if I can say, uh, a, an approach of counselling giving about a year of thinking back to Islam by having a counselling. And that, has, that approach has been extended to all states, despite that every state has these uh, punishments, offences under the provisions. And uh, last two years, the state of Selangor has come up with a comprehensive module to tackle this issue. And that would be very, very different from what we call it punishment. So that approach, I suppose, is now taking place in Malaysia, despite provisions on punishments uh, with regard to apostasy. If you enjoyed and would like to explore more, visit islamandlibertynetwork.org. You can also support us through a donation button on the site. Thank you for listening to this podcast.